Ready? Born ready. What's up, everyone? You are tuning in to Where to Party at, your favorite political podcast. I hope the new year is treating you right. Is it just me or does it feel like January is going by super fast? It's already week two, and that basically means the month is over. Yep. All right, y'all. So let's get into it. Let's start talking about what's happening in Atlanta politics, and then we'll go beyond that. So Mayor Andre Dickens, which I'm still getting used to saying that. I don't know if it's just me. It's like, oh, snap. I can't just call him Andre anymore to call him Mayor Andre Dickens. He has started to announce new hires, and he's also announced chairs for his transition committee. So typically, when you win elected office, You'll map out at least your first 100 days and you'll start to assemble a group of community and business leaders who are going to be like your sounding board. And that's basically what he did is announcing that transition committee. I'm going to give the mayor and his team some props because one of those uh, chairs is the Atlanta Public School Superintendent, Lisa Herring. And that is rare. Maybe this is the first time it's happened. I'm not sure. Uh, to see this kind of real collaboration between APS, that's Atlanta Public Schools, and City Hall. Why does that matter? Because everything from affordable housing to crime also has a impact in our public schools. And so it's very important to see APS and City Hall actually working together. Uh, let's hope this is a sign of good things to come. So if there's one phrase that is going to be seared into our minds over the next four years of Andre's term, it's going to be this. I draw circles, not lines. Uh, during the um, inauguration, he said this repeatedly in his inaugural speech. He also said it repeatedly on the campaign trail. Um, and he's even continued to say this as mayor as he's gone through a number of community meetings over the past what, 10 days or so. Um, so it's the right message, especially if you're trying to keep the city from splitting apart. By the way, if you missed last week's episode, make sure you go check it out. I gave my predictions for the year, including on Buckhead Cityhood. And that's obviously something that Andre, Mayor Andre Dickens is going to have to uh, contend with. All right, so let's widen our lens a little bit and talk about what's happening in Georgia and across the country. All right, first up, Purdue versus Kemp. As crazy as it sounds, Georgia's primary election is going to be here before you know it, May 24th. That is the date. That is the showdown between Governor Brian Kemp and former U.S. Senator David Purdue. Also got to add in there, you've got the Senate campaigns as well, Herschel Walker versus Raphael Warnock, uh, and then obviously... On the, on the Democratic side, it looks like it's going to be smooth sailing with not a lot of Democrats having opposition in the primary. All right, so let me highlight something Purdue uh, did recently that's kind of interesting. So 
Monday of this week, the Georgia General Assembly, they just started their 2022 session. So that's your state house and your state Senate. They're always in session from January, February, March, and it ends in April. So there's this longstanding rule that you were prohibited during the camp, during the session from accepting campaign contributions. This also applies to the governor and the lieutenant governor. Now, the whole point of this is to keep them honest, right? So if I'm, you know, let's just say Microsoft, I can't have a bill that's up for a vote during the session and then go pay the House and Senate members whatever I need to pay them by contributing to their campaigns to pass that bill, right? That's the whole point of this. But last year, Republicans came up with this new campaign finance tool. It's called a leadership committee. So this came out of the Senate. Uh, and this bill, basically, it allows the governor, the lieutenant governor, and general election nominees for, for both uh, statewide positions plus majority and minority caucus leaders in the House and the Senate to create and chair what's called these leadership committees. And this basically gives them unlimited contributions that they can spend in coordinated support of Georgia state and local candidates and elected officials, right? Now, I didn't, I'm not explaining this in my words. This is actually from Denton's, which is the largest, largest law firm in the country, and it's one of the most influential lobbying firms in the state. So why is this a big deal? These leadership committees, they give the incumbent, so that's the person who's already in office, the advantage, right? They make our politics even more partisan, which is crazy. So how does this happen? Uh, so basically, if you were the head of the committee, it uh, gives you enormous power within your party, right? So let's just say I'm Savalong. I just got elected to the state legislator and I've got to figure out how to win my next election, right? I'm going to be more inclined to do what my party leaders are telling me to do because I want to get whatever money is in that committee, that particular leadership committee, right? So these committees further erode trust in government. So this is a big deal, again, because you don't want the person who's passing legislation to be swayed by what um, a particular corporation or entity or even the party leadership wants them to do, right? So, so I got a question for the people. So are you saying that right now you can't accept any money? Correct. So Monday the session started. If I am in the House or in the Senate, no one can contribute to my campaign. Only only during the session. Only during the session. Now, when the session is over, I can contribute. I can. Right. But not during the session. So right. now, are there like two pots? Is there like a Democratic leadership committee and then a Republican? So yes. what about an, an additional party? Well, there's only two parties in the House and Senate right now. So, I mean, what if a third party candidate happens to become... Then, then they can create their own their own leadership uh, committee. So this is essentially like a mini bank for... Basically, yeah. That's a great way of putting it. So, okay, the company can't contribute to my campaign while I'm in session, but they can contribute to the House Democratic Caucus leadership committee 
And then that committee can spend the money however they see fit. And again, this is during the session, during the session at any point. This is, again, what makes this unique is this is unlimited money right now. Normally, (laughs) when you're running for elected office, you have what's called campaign contribution limits. Right. So that's normally twenty eight hundred dollars per person or per company. But this means, oh, I can drop a hundred thousand dollar check in. I can drop twenty thousand and whatever that number is that I can afford. Right. So it's just another story of greed and power in our government and our politics. uh, And it's unfortunate. So back to David Perdue. So late last week, uh, Perdue filed a lawsuit to challenge the constitutionality of this legislation. Right. He's basically saying, I don't think this is constitutional because it gives the incumbent an unfair advantage. Right. And I think this is going to be the one time that Democrats actually side with David Perdue on something. Um, And he's doing it because it gives Governor Brian Kemp, again, an enormous advantage as we go into the primary, which is in May. Uh, And what's interesting, when he filed this lawsuit, he didn't say anything in the lawsuit about the Senate leadership committees or the House leadership committee. He only focused on the governor. Uh, So we'll see. What ends up happening with this? So the first financial disclosure is due next month. Uh, We'll see how much Kemp has benefited from this tool. I'm betting he's going to have a huge uh, treasure chest of money. We'll see what what happens there. Another story about greed in politics. Uh, Senator John Ossoff, who you all know, got elected January 2021 with Raphael Warnock. He just wrote an ethics bill that he's planning to introduce in the United States Senate, uh, but he's waiting to find a Republican co-sponsor because he wants this bill to be bipartisan. It's a bill that is long overdue and can go a really long way in restoring trust in government. So what is this bill? Uh, Basically, it bans members of Congress from trading individual stock. Oh, shouldn't that be something everyone agrees with? Not quite. So there's already a version of this bill uh, that's out there, but Ossoff's goes even further. So it closes a particular loophole that folks keep taking advantage of. It's called the spousal loophole. So basically, okay, I'm Senator Saba. I can't buy individual stock, but my husband can buy individual stock, right? Um, And... If you remember in the last election, this became a huge thing in the Senate campaigns because Ossoff and Warnock both hit their Republican candidates. That's David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler for doing this exact same thing. And this happened at the height or the very beginning of the pandemic, just as we were starting to understand what the heck was going on. So take a listen to this clip from Atlanta News Channel 11 Alive. And they're talking about this insider trading that went on between Purdue and Kelly Leffler. Both of Georgia's U.S. senators are under fire for allegedly trying to profit from the coronavirus pandemic. Records show that Senators Kelly Leffler and David Purdue bought and sold stock shortly after a private Senate briefing on the virus, a classified briefing. 11 Lives' Doug Richards explains. In the days before he showed up at the state capitol March 2nd to sign up for re-election, 
Republican Senator David Perdue's financial portfolio was very active, according to reports Perdue filed with the U.S. Senate Ethics Office. And in that same time period, the same records show that Republican Senator Kelly Loeffler and her husband Jeff Sprecher were even more active. All following a private U.S. Senate briefing January 24th on the spreading threat of the coronavirus. Records show Leffler and her husband, whose company owns the U.S. Stock Exchange, sold stock valued between $1.3 and $3.1 million in the weeks before the market tanked. Records show that Purdue didn't sell nearly that much, but he did purchase between $63,000 and $245,000 worth of stock in Pfizer, a pharmaceutical company now developing a coronavirus vaccine. The records show only a range, not exact amounts. The transactions are raising questions about whether Georgia's two wealthy U.S. senators are getting even richer with early knowledge of the virus's threat. Were you trading on inside information about what was coming? Leffler spoke to Fox News at midday. All right, so you hear very clearly what they did, right? I mean, buying stock in Pfizer in March of 2020, when we really didn't understand what was going on with the pandemic. That's quite telling. So Purdue and Leffler at the time, they said, hey, we weren't personally responsible for the trades. It's not like I went in and bought these stocks, right? Um, That's very easy to say. But at the end of the day, who's to say they didn't call their financial advisor say, oh, hey, I had a very interesting meeting. Do with this info as you will. I'm not telling you what to do, but, you know, just kind of interesting something. You might be, you know, you might want to make some moves. Um, So, again, there's already a bipartisan bill in the House that's similar to what Ossoff um, is proposing. But the real question here is, does this bill go anywhere? Like, does this actually have a shot? I'm going to say no, (laughs) but... Hey, it's the new year, so maybe we should be skeptically optimistic. Uh, why am I saying no to this? Because the Speaker of the House, Democrat Nancy Pelosi, just a couple weeks ago publicly stated that members of the House should be able to publicly trade individual stocks. Now, let me say her husband is in venture capital. He has an investment firm, so obviously it's against her personal family financial interest for this bill to go anywhere uh, and is not going to pass in the House. And then not, it has to pass in the House and the Senate. Right. So you can't have one set of rules for House members and a different rule for Senate members. I think this is a real opportunity for bipartisan reform. It's a one thing that I think both parties can come together with and say, hey, we recognize there's distrust in government. We recognize that folks think that our elected officials are putting themselves first and we're going to come together and fix this. Um, but, and then let me just say this. I, I think it's really fake and disingenuine to be a Democrat in the house and Senate fighting against income inequality and saying you're down for the people and we need to raise the minimum wage and we need to do all this stuff to fix equity. And at the same time, You are profiting off of and killing legislation that gives you the upper hand. So I call BS on Democrats who are doing that. So Biden and Harris are in Georgia, in Atlanta today. They are here 
championing voting rights. So if you got stuck behind uh, them, even the Atlanta traffic got even worse, now you understand why. So according to the White House, uh, they are here, quote, to speak to the American people about the urgent need to pass legislation to protect the constitutional right to vote and the integrity of our elections for com from corrupt attempts to strip law-abiding citizens of their fundamental freedoms and allow partisan state officials to undermine vote-counting processes. It's no surprise that they are in Georgia. We remember everything that has happened since the 2020 election uh, and the runoff around voting rights and voting access and all of that. So when the news first broke of their visit, a number of progressive Georgia groups basically said, like, show me, don't come here and tell me, right? Like, show me the work, what you're actually trying to do. So here's what uh, these Georgia groups said. And these were obviously, again, progressive Democratic groups. Georgia voters made history and made their voices heard, overcoming obstacles, threats, and suppressive laws to deliver the White House and the U.S. Senate. In return, a visit has been forced on them, requiring them to accept political platitudes and repetitious, bland promises. Such an empty gesture without concrete action, without signs of real, tangible work is unacceptable. I saw that and I was like, well, exactly that. I was like, okay, I hear you. So this bill is called the Freedom to Vote Act. I mean, to be honest, we have been talking about uh, expanding and improving voting rights since, geez, when Obama was president, I guess. Uh, so Raphael Warnock, Senator Raphael Warnock, is one of the sponsors of the Senate bill. Uh, the challenge with voting access today is this is all up to the states, right? So this isn't really a federalized issue. So some Americans have access to incredibly convenient ways to vote, right? So I think about Seattle voters, for example. Uh, everything they do is vote by mail. It's incredibly accessible. And then others are far more restrictive. I mean, we saw here in Georgia where the 2020 election, there was a drop box, you know, everywhere to now drop boxes are, I think they're like in the dozens now compared to what they were in 2020, or there may have been like 60 in one county. Now you only have like 10 in one county. So here's some of the things that the bill is calling for. And again, the whole point of this is to make these changes happen across the country, to make it fair across the country. Number one, at least 15 days of early voting access. The second, requiring states to offer vote by mail, online voter registration, and this is something that is impactful, same day registration. So that means if the election is tomorrow, you can register tomorrow and vote tomorrow. Another is restoring voting rights for felons who have served their sentence. This actually happened in Florida. It was a big deal. Uh, and another, uh, which is something that I, again, I would think folks could agree on, election day as a national holiday. And then I mentioned the drop boxes earlier requiring states to offer drop boxes and it allows anyone to drop off a ballot, which is unique uh, in Georgia right now. Only a family member or a caregiver can drop off your ballot. This is a huge issue for Republicans. A lot of Republicans are concerned uh, that having anyone drop off your ballot can lead to voter fraud. 
and they are calling uh, this ballot harvesting. So in my opinion, the, the most important aspects of this bills are what I haven't even mentioned yet. It, they tackle two of the most uh, damaging components of American politics right now. Number one is gerrymandering. Uh, check a couple of episodes back. We talked about what gerrymandering is and how to fix it. And the other is dark money. Uh, so the legislation would create independent panels to draw voting districts. And that means that you don't have partisan gerrymandering. So you don't have Democrats drawing the maps. You don't have Republicans drawing the maps. It's actually an independent group drawing those maps, making those districts competitive, no more safe seats. So that means that it really forces the politicians, those folks running, to think about how can I put together a message that it's going to make everyone interested in who I am, not just one party or another. Uh, the other thing this bill does as it relates to dark money is it requires the disclosure of who's behind these independent expenditures and other secretive campaign financing. So, again, you should be knowing who is backing your politicians, uh, who is giving them money, right? So why hasn't this voting rights bill passed? Uh, so you may have heard of something called a filibuster. In order to avoid a filibuster by Republicans, Democrats need 60 votes. They need 60 people to support this bill. Now, remember, the United States Senate has 100 people. So that means some Republicans would have to vote for the bill. But as you know, you've seen everything that's going on in D.C. right now. The likelihood of getting Republicans, even one or two of them, to vote for something is pretty doggone close to zero. Now, the big question facing Democrats is should they nuke the filibuster? And that means that they only need to uh, pass a majority vote. Today, there are 50 Democrats in the United States Senate. If you remember, if you paid attention in civics class, you know who the tiebreaker is in the United States Senate. That is the vice president of the United States, Kamala Harris. So if you have all 50 Democrats vote for something and then the vice president is that tiebreaker, bam, that gets the legislation passed. Now, there's a whole lot of debate about this, right? So should we uh, eliminate the filibuster? Should we do this kind of nuclear option? It depends on who you talk to. You know, one side says, well, you know, it swings both ways, right? So we nuke the filibuster today. If Republicans win the Senate in November, that means Republicans are going to come for us, right? And then the other side says, well, what the hell is the point of having power if you're not going to use it? Um, and I don't know what's going on with Democrats, but they seem really doggone scared to use their power. So, by the way, President Bill Clinton, President Barack Obama, and yes, Oprah have all called on Joe Manchin and asked him to support getting this voting rights bill passed, which again means getting rid of the filibuster. So I, I don't work in Washington, y'all know that, but I think Democrats are wasting their breath trying to get Joe Manchin to do anything that's going to actually help them. I mean, let's be real, like Manchin is going to Manchin. I don't see how in the world he's going to support uh, nuking the filibuster. And he's already said that he wants his voting rights bill to be bipartisan. But 
That's admirable. It's ideal. It should be bipartisan. But we are not living in the world of ideal. The reality is Republicans across the country, including in Georgia, are enacting laws that make it harder to vote. Let's also not forget that we have millions of Americans who think the last presidential election was a fraud. And they also believe that immigrants uh, who were here illegally voted for Democrats and caused Republicans to win, to lose rather. So we're not playing, we're not playing by the same set of rules here, right? We're not, we're not playing from the same set of facts. Uh, So at the end of the day, you know, I would think that Democrats would take a page from the late Harry Reid's book uh, and do what you need to do to pass the legislation because, unfortunately, uh, in America, we are just at this point where whichever party is in power, that party is going to do whatever it is they want to do. And so if you have the power, do what you need to do, uh, and then the pendulum will swing, and then Republicans will do what they think they need to do. Uh, that's unfortunate, but that's, again, where we are right now. And it's also why gerrymandering, getting rid of gerrymandering and having these Uh, competitive seats is so important because it really forces politicians to compromise, to work together, uh, and to not get so stuck in these partisan uh, buckets that they're in. So speaking of a partisan, I don't want to call them a nutcase, but it's just a sad case. We'll call it a partisan sad case. Castaway Cruise. So, you know, last week, There was a lot of discussion about the one-year anniversary of the January 6th riot and the insurrection. If you check out last week's episode, we talked about this. So on paper, Texas Senator Ted Cruz is one of the smartest people in the United States Senate. And it's why I find his actions and his words just so disappointing because he knows better. He knows uh, the impact of his words. But unfortunately, he is choosing power over common sense. What am I talking about? So Ted Cruz uh, said that uh, the Capitol insurrection uh, was a terrorist attack. I mean, he really uh, repudiated what happened. But then Fox News contributor Tucker Carlson got real pissed about it. Right. So take a listen to what Ted Cruz said originally. And then I'm going to have you listen to what happened to him on Fox News. One example. Uh, We are approaching a solemn anniversary this week. uh, And it is an anniversary of a violent terrorist attack on the Capitol where we saw the men and women of law enforcement demonstrate incredible courage, incredible bravery, uh, risk their lives uh, to defend the men and women who serve in this Capitol. Let's be honest. Everyone who's conservative appreciates. All right. So that's what Ted Cruz said at first. Right. And then Tucker Carlson goes on a rant. And uh, that night, Ted Cruz sends him a text and says, yo, let me come on your show tomorrow. Let me explain myself. Take a listen to what happens. Senator Cruz was game enough to come on tonight. We appreciate that. He joins us now. Senator, thanks so much for coming on. So I guess what I, I mean, there are a lot of dumb people in the Congress. You're not one of them. I think you're smarter than I am. Uh, and you never use words carelessly. Um, and yet you called this a terror attack when by no definition was it a terror attack. That's a lie. 
You told that lie on purpose, and I'm wondering why you did. Well, Tucker, thank you for having me on. When you aired your episode last night, I, I sent you a text shortly thereafter and said, listen, I'd like to go on because the way I phrased things yesterday, it, it was sloppy and, and it was frankly dumb. And, I don't and buy that. Whoa, 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 whoa. No, I don't whoa. buy that. For, look, I've known you a long time since before you went to the Senate. You were a Supreme Court contender. Dang. You take words as seriously as any man who's ever served in the Senate. And every word you repeated that phrase, I do not believe that you used that accidentally. I just don't. It's, so, Tucker, as a result of my sloppy phrasing, it's caused a lot of people to misunderstand what I meant. Let me tell you what, what I meant to say. What I was referring to are, are the limited number of people who engaged in violent attacks against police officers. Now, I think you and I both agree that if you assault a police officer, you should go to jail. That's who I was talking about. And the reason the phrasing was sloppy is I have talked dozens, if not hundreds of times, I've drawn a distinction. I wasn't saying that the thousands of peaceful protesters supporting Donald Trump are somehow terrorists. I wasn't saying the millions of, of, of patriots across the country supporting President Trump are terrorists. And that's what a lot of people have misunderstood well, that comment. Wait a second, focused, but even you yeah. wait, but hold on. What you just said doesn't make sense. So if somebody assaults a cop, he should be charged and go to jail. I couldn't agree more. Mm -hmm. We have said that for years. But that person's still not a terrorist. How many people have been charged with terrorism on January so listen, 6th? Like, why'd you none, use that word? You're playing into the other side's characterization that, as Joe Kent just explained, allows them to define an entire population as foreign combatants. And you know that. So why'd you do it? So, so Tucker, let me answer you directly. The, the reason I use that word for a decade, I have referred to people who violently assault police officers as terrorists. I've done so over and over and over again. If you look at all the assaults we've seen across the country, I've called that terrorism over and over again. That being said, Tucker, I agree with you. It was a mistake to say that yesterday. And the reason is what you just said which is we've now had a year of Democrats in the media twisting words. That dude, Ted Cruz, is one of only 100 people in the United States at any given time who are making public policy decisions. And he just sat there and got slapped upside the head left and right by a TV anchor. That is just pathetic. It's just <laughs> sad to see. I mean, this dude is smart and he just got... I mean, it was, just, it was like a kid getting a whooping or something. It was that was just bad, um, and it it speaks to what in the world is going on with the Republican Party and the absolute power that Fox News has on uh, Republican elected officials and candidates and the party as a whole. I, I mean, CNN and MSNBC, as partisan as they are, I don't think. They have anywhere near the power that uh, Fox News has on a particular party. It's just wild to see. It's, and it's, again, pathetic and really sad. All right, so last last thing on the list for this week. Uh, so I saw two great movies over the past couple of weeks, uh, and I want to put them on your radar. One you may have heard of. It's called Don't Look Up. It's breaking all the Netflix records uh, shout out to my friend Randy for telling me to watch this, for putting me on. Uh, so this is a movie about the state of American politics, but it's really about climate change and it's done in like a really fun, uh, it's a comedic way. Uh, the gist is this meteor is going to strike Earth. I'm not going to tell you any more beyond that. Uh, it stars Jennifer Lawrence. You may remember her from The Hunger Games and then Leonardo DiCaprio. 
Uh, my favorite character in the show is Jonah Hill's character. He's just hilarious. Um, and then, you know what's so funny to me? Tyler Perry's in this. Tyler Perry is so good in other people's movies. It's, I'm like, how does this work? Yeah. <laughs> it's just so funny. Uh, so log into your ex's Netflix account and check out this movie. It's good. Uh, another one is a documentary. It's on Amazon Prime. I'm sure it's on others, but I saw it on Amazon Prime. It's called American Gadfly. Uh, and it's not a boring documentary, I promise. It chronicles former Senator Mike Ravel's 2020 campaign for the United States presidency. Who? I know, you're probably like, Senator Mike Ravel. I don't remember <coughs> seeing that person on the stage. So Mike Ravel was Bernie before Bernie, right? So he was the senator from Alaska uh, his claim to fame is he's the one who read in the Pentagon Papers in the congressional record, uh, which then allowed the Washington Post, the New York Times, and other media outlets to be able to publish these classified documents. Now, if you've never heard of the Pentagon Papers, there's one more movie you should check out. It's called The Post, uh, and it it gives you uh, the gist of whatever what the Pentagon Papers was. So, there was this treasure trove of government documents that show, all classified that showed the United States government was lying about the Vietnam War. So their internal reports were saying this is a disaster, uh, but they were telling the public that they were making progress, right? And the U.S. government knowingly lied about this. Uh, so Senator Gravel got a hold of the papers. He read them into the congressional record. And as a result, he helped uh, in the war and really like bring... Uh, justice to this. So Gravel then kind of completely went off the radar. You know, he didn't win his reelection for other reasons. Um, he's kind of a peculiar guy. You'll see this in the documentary, but he ran for president in 2008. He didn't go anywhere. Um, and then in 2020, these teenagers from New York, like literally 17, 18 in high school, uh, these kids convinced Gravel to run for president. Now, at this point, Gravel, I think, was like 88, uh, but they run his campaign, and the whole point of this was they're trying to get him on the debate stage. So take a listen to a clip from the movie. We threw out our resumes to various campaigns when the season started, but we realized, you know, as a 17, 18-year-old, there's no reason for anyone to take us seriously. And on another level, what really matters to us is issues that no one was talking about. There's this niche that we knew that we'd seen online of, of political thinkers and a lot of very smart people on the left. And none of that is leaking back into the mainstream. It's this real closed loop of people who are on the left and are kind of depressed, honestly, looking at the state of the world. We've heard on Chapo that it took 65,000 individual donors to get on the debate stage. So David had the idea, hey, why not you know, run a presidential campaign? We figured, what do these people actually want? They want somebody to give hot takes on Twitter that they agree with. And I think what they really want is they want this person to represent the potential to make change. We saw Mike Gravel as an icon that a lot of people on the left could rally around. You have someone with a real record, with real progressive chops, who's been around forever. It was the perfect candidate for the campaign that we wanted to run. It's definitely, I've never heard of any high schoolers doing something like this before. And then we figured, you know, what if we just went for it? Uh, the documentary is a really good primer on what it takes to run a campaign and just how hard it is for a non-establishment candidate to break through, right? So 
both political parties really set the rules in a way that it's practically impossible to be heard by the media, to get on the debate stage, to raise the money you need to raise, all of that. Right? It's very difficult. And that's what this documentary shows. And it's why folks were so surprised, so shocked by how well Andrew Yang did in his presidential run, right? Especially compared to the billionaires like Tom Steyer and Mike Bloomberg, who were on the debate stage, but had significantly less real support. Uh, and that shouldn't happen. So, by the way, uh, last week, Andrew Yang did his predictions for 2022. One of them, uh, that a third-party candidate was going to announce this year uh, that they were going to run for president in 2024. Now, I don't know if Andrew Yang was saying that he is going to run for president in 2024 or if he knows someone who's going to run. I don't know. We'll see. Um, but anyway, check out both of those. Uh, the first one, don't look up. Uh, and the second one is called American Gadfly. All right. So that is this week's show. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Come back next week. We're going to add a fun segment onto the podcast. So you definitely want to come check that out. Have a great week. <laughs>